You're listening to Podcast on Fire. It's Asian cinema in a podcast. With your hosts, the magnificent trio of Stu, Ken, and Mike. Hey everybody, you're tuned in to Podcast on Fire. I'm your host, Stu. Joining me tonight, we have Ken. Hey. And Mike. Good evening. So basically, I should be actually saying welcome to Japan on Fire. Yes, over the next few shows we will be focusing on some of the many, many genres in Japanese cinema. Lined up for us tonight though, we will be tackling J-horror and anime. So to start things off, I'll let Ken give you a brief history of Japanese horror. Take it away, Ken. Oh, thank you very much. Well, uh... I should state, this is maybe more of a personal statement though, that uh, uh, I'm new to, I consider myself new to Japanese cinema because I watch it so infrequently and when I do watch it, it, it's not necessarily, you know, the next classic that you have to watch that I managed to get, you know, it might be just, you know, a shit film from Japan. So this series I'm actually quite looking forward to because it's expanding uh, my horizon anyway. and. Therefore, I think these shows are valid in the way that they are basic shows. We're just going to provide you with a basic history and then run down the films we focused on, which are not necessarily the movies that people think of when thinking horror or anime, which should make for a fun show in a, in a way, because I think there are enough insights uh, out there on The Seven Samurai or Rashomon or Ran or whatever, and we won't tackle those films. So. Hmm. But anyway, J-Horror, um, copied straight from Wikipedia, so if anything is wrong here, it's Wikipedia's fault. I, I <laughs> put my trust in them completely. So, in short, J-Horror is a term used to refer to Japanese contributions to horror fiction in popular culture. Makes sense? Uh, it tends to focus on psychological horror and tension-building, uh, particularly... Uh, tension-building stories and movies, uh, particularly involving ghosts and poltergeists, while, while many also contain themes of folk religions such as possession, exorcism, shamanism, uh, precognition, and yokai. And yokai is a type of demon out of Japanese folklore. And you do quite a big fast-forward up until kind of the time where people started to use the term J-horror more frequently, I guess, and I was after the success of uh, Ring or Ringu by Hideo Nakata in oh, what year was that? 2099? I don't know. Uh, late 90s, I hope. Yeah. Uh, and, and that movie, Ringu, I guess spawned a revival of horror filmmaking, and uh, you had movies following, such as uh, the 2001 film Pulse, aka Cairo. Directed by Kiyoshi Kurosawa and uh, Takeshi Shimizu's The Grudge, and all its uh, versions in different medias and remakes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, The Grudge is that 
that is probably one of the more expanded or redone stories in J-horror over the last few years, especially by that director, I think. Uh, so it's TV, yeah. video, and the American remakes, and... Mm-hmm. I think the third American remake's out now. <laughs> but, uh, uh, so if you go into the, the notion of Japanese ghosts, um, what I learned was, was quite fascinating to me, that, that the term yurei, uh, basically a Japanese ghost, uh, you describe it like this, uh, they're ghosts that have been bound to the physical world through strong emotions, which wouldn't, will not allow them to pass on. And depending on the kind of emotion that binds them to this world, uh, they manifest as a particular type of ghost. And the most common of these yureis to J-horror is the unryo, where a yurei bound by a desire for vengeance. And when I'm talking about it, you might recognize that type of ghost, because they wear white clothing, which is the color of a funeral garb in Japan. They have long, often unkept black hair, which comes out of kabuki theater, while each character has a particular particular type of wig that identifies them to the audience. And this type of ghost is, you know, that's a cliche today. That's out of ring. Mm-hmm. But it's a, lo- it's, a, it's a thing that has been around for, for ages. So I was quite fascinated to learn of it being a, a thing. Uh, a very known thing and nowadays people just associate it with J-horror which is well, that's not the fault of the people it's just the way that uh, popular culture phenomenon uh, does to a to, to a long lasting thing so. mm-hmm. uh, but I guess any thoughts on the uh, before we go into the movie here any thoughts of the recent J-horror uh, revival uh, in general do you like it? Um, I, it might have overstayed its welcome because I think when like, the American remake of The Ring came out in 2002 that was pretty freaky because that was basically the, the first of us getting to see this side of the story but of course by the time The Grudge 3 came out well no one was scared of the old Japanese kids anymore no one was scared of this kind of yurei <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> what were you, Mike? Well, the thing is, when when something's popular in film, when in, in any kind of uh, saleable media, then uh, there's a thousand different versions and all clones of it come out. So it's bound to be get get to a saturation point. And like you mentioned, there's not just lots of these kind of Japanese ghost stories from Japan, but also from similar kind of films from. Uh, other Asian countries and the American remakes that follow so it's just uh, yeah the poly is a bit too much mm-hmm. it's a natural thing fortunately and unfortunately you well know, yeah uh, well, I mean you get a lot of uh, obviously not all the films that come out are going to be poo there's going to be some really good ones in there you know just sifting through the uh, chaff to find the week mm-hmm. and it's a suitable thing we're talking about uh, the way that the genre and the J-horror in general uh, wore, wore itself out because the movie that uh, I chose because it's a favorite of mine uh, it was a movie that uh, didn't really want to be just like any other ring and it's the movie called Dark Water by the director of the ring Hideo Nakata or Hideo Nakata also the director of the uh, sequel to the remake of Ring in America. I believe he was brought on as 
the director of The Ring 2. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and the Dark Water, I, I actually loved. And uh, the, uh, I'll, I'll run through the plot first and then a little fact, fact for you. So, and Dark Water was, of course, remade, by the way, into the uh, Jennifer Connelly film that was released mm-hmm. a few years ago. Uh, but and the, uh, sorry. Sorry, no, I was just about to say, according to Wikipedia about it, although it, it's not confirmed, but there is a supposed Indian remake as well in the cards. Mm-hmm. Any, any notes about uh, uh, dancing, singing, three hours? <laughs> um, I'm sure it's almost expected. <laughs> Don't haunt us anymore! Bad, bad <laughs> ghost. <laughs> it's not someone walking above them, it's like half a dozen fuck dancing. Yeah, half a dozen. <laughs> Times 100. <laughs> Widest fucking frame you can imagine. <laughs> anyway, this one, Dark Water. Uh, the basic plot is a mother and daughter still wounded from a bitter custody dispute, and uh, ongoing really. They take residence in a in a rundown apartment building, and uh, adding further drama to their plight, they are targeted by the ghost of a former tenant in the house. And um, it's actually based on a short story by Koji Suzuki called Floating Water and this was the novelist behind Ringo actually and uh, Dark Water has also been ad- adapted as a manga and uh, I guess I should also tell you a little about what Hideo Nakata did after Ringo because if you break through you're you're expected to to ride that wave I guess but he uh, he did shoot uh, the sequel to in Japan as well and also the documentary Sadistic and Masochistic about a director called Masoro Konoma who dedicated his life to Japanese soft porn. Directed more than 47 films in more than three decades and specializing in SNM. So that's a cool little sidetrack of Hideo Nakata's. So, uh, um, I, I guess, um, does anyone uh, out of you guys want to share their opinion of Dark Water? first um well i remember when seeing it for the first time it almost felt like it wasn't horror it was like when you kind of got into the story of it it was almost sort of like this dark drama in a way like how the abandonment of the well with things that happened to the child and a bunch of other things i can't actually concentrate because something's just caught me in the eye <laughs> i got like a speck of dust so it was please. A sad, it was a sad <laughs> movie. <laughs> You're affected, Stuart. You're alive. <laughs> yeah, aye. Okay. I'm, I'm physically affected by this film. It's a ghost in your uh, where you live, Stuart. It doesn't want you to leave. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to terrorise you into staying. Well, who knows how the ghost world actually works, so... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, back to the film. Um, yeah, it was all right. <laughs> There's, I can't really think of too much to say about it. Like, I did like the film. And and and, and, and you very correct uh, that it mixes. You mm-hmm. know, it's not necessarily a horror film you think of. When you're 30, 40 minutes into the film, this is this is different. Mm-hmm. Something new, <laughs> and another, and not another appearance of the now cliched Yurei or Onryo, these kind of demons. 
So, yeah, I want Mike's opinion now. It's difficult to know where to start, really. Okay, I'll start with, this film stinks. Oops. <laughs> I absolutely hated it. One, it's not remotely scary. <laughs> and it, it seems to be trying to develop tension, but fails to do so. So instead of being kind of a, a tense, terse build-up to, to events, it actually is just slow. Death. There's a damp patch on her ceiling. Ooh, scary music. Ooh, she's staring at it strangely. Like we're supposed to shit our pants because she's got a damp patch. No! <laughs> also, the way she reacts to everything. She reacts like she's in a horror film. All the time. You know, it's, it's not just, ah, oh, bollocks, you know, there's a bit of a drip in the ceiling. It's stare at the ceiling. <gasps> Freaky music. Ooh, there's a bit of water coming down. Also, there's, there's inconsistencies in the characters and a lot of illogical uh, developments in the plot, which I didn't like. And uh, the, the ending is incredibly inconsistent for the character as well. And then there's an extra tacked-on bit of ending, which felt like... Uh, felt absolutely pointless. And I, I sat there kind of looking at watching it, thinking... What is the point of this? What is going on? I don't really get it. I don't think there's a message there. I think it's an attempt to try and make you feel a little bit better. Rather than leaving you with a really dark ending, which still didn't make any sense. Um, yeah, I couldn't stand it at all. I th there was almost nothing there that was redeemable. I hate you, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> I I actually disagree completely, <laughs> but that's all right. Well, 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 uh, well. Your opinion is all right to me. I don't know if you if you will disapprove of mine, but of course not, Ken. Pre pretty much all you said that you didn't like, I actually thought was you know what made the film. I wouldn't say terrific, but I think it's very good, and uh, you know. I like that slow, static feeling in the movie. Uh, because uh, I think it makes sense that you associate the movie with static, distressing, grey, wet, and have it be a sort of a custody drama uh, as well. That made sense to me because, yeah, it just did really. I, I, I was sucked in. I was sucked in to, to this. And also this desire. From Nakata to put forth a strong story in combination with chills, and again, chills is sort of a subjective thing because it either reaches you or it doesn't. Uh, I think that's uh, not 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 necessarily always bad filmmaking. It's just the way you insert yourself into the story and stuff like that. But which perhaps is the sign of bad filmmaking, though. If if a director can't reach you with the story, then the chills are, you know, fall flat. But uh, the thing about the drama, I mean, I, I, you know, I can understand it being kind of um, a tense drama that then kind of builds up into the, the actual kind of, you know, horror-style ending. But I didn't... I couldn't engage with the characters, except for the little girl. The mother, I just was... She was, she was too wet. 
no pun intended and <laughs> and and halfway through or after about half an hour i was thinking yeah she is a bit of a mental she probably shouldn't be looking after that kid yeah yeah they bring, up, the uh, they bring up the fact that she had psychological problems before uh well, I guess the reason was that she she was well, she's a proofreader by uh, um, that's what she does that's what she knows and she proofread horror stories and she inserted herself into that quite quite intensely. There's no scene showing this, but uh, it's uh, it's what the obviously the lawyers and stuff bring up and and the the uh, douchebag your husband <laughs> uh, like to bring up in order to get custody of the child. Which is, you know, a classic cliche thing. You know, you, you play dirty in these kind of custody battles. Which I didn't mind. Uh, even though when, when I'm talking about it, it sounds like every other, you know, custody drama uh, that's been ever made. But, uh, uh, The thing is, though, he only seems like a douchebag if you're engaged and empathizing with the, the, the character that he's been douchey against. Which mm -hmm. I wasn't, so in the end, he doesn't... Right. He looks a little bit like a douche, but actually, somebody's making quite a bit of sense. Yeah, well, well, that that I, that I agree on. Uh, the further the movie moves on, because there is a, a case, uh, you know, the lawyers and the law really can't side with her, sort of losing her losing her mind based on this, you know, uh, this spirit with unknown intentions creeping into her life. So obviously, she is appearing a bit mental and mentally unstable and. Mm -hmm. You know that th that would be a good case for her to actually lose custody of her daughter, and I, I, for me at that point, that that was a really emotional, horrible predicament for me, losing her daughter to a father that didn't care before, or to a spirit with unknown intentions, which is you know an, an example of how I personally inserted myself into a film. Hmm. And uh, you know, uh, there's there's further signs. Uh, I guess of the foreboding nature of the film uh, again for me uh, the, the design of the building obviously the dark long dark building long hallways grey hallways cramped mm -hmm. elevator you know the eerie surveillance footage in the elevator yeah uh, I guess one character that I was a bit annoyed about that appeared really creepy for the sake of being creepy was the old guy the um, the maintenance man you know this 80 year old maintenance man who mm -hmm. You wonder how he could keep his keep keep his job. Well, well, I guess if nothing happened in the building, then, Probably then you know, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, and it's also creepiness because obviously the movie, movie as you said, Mike switched into horror. Uh, I still followed it, followed it all the way through, and and yeah, I I, I was deeply affected even throughout the ending that that you described very well as. Uh, a way of making you feel a bit better because I think uh, that was what I guess I needed uh, when you look back in the rearview mirror I... and it's not one of those endings where they it's not a cheap ending that, uh, that they did for you know for the sake of uh, just doing it uh, just uh, show that they uh, uh, they could crawl out of the car that that exploded 50 times at the end they survived <laughs> You know, mm -hmm. they just they, they didn't do that after the fact, but uh, uh, yeah, they, this was emotional horror for me, and it worked uh, thoroughly. And uh, and uh, as always, it's 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 good that we have different opinions for once, really very different opinions. 
Hmm. Oh, we've still got three more films to talk about, Kenneth. Oh boy. <laughs> and free, yeah, free Japan on fires. This is gonna be, this is gonna be a bumpy ride. Wait, mate, I did make a note of Ken owes me one hour, 40 minutes, and uh, 52 seconds. Ah, <laughs> and how, and, 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 and is that list up to like 500 movies now? This director <laughs> owes me this, not much money, and this many hours and minutes? But it's not often that I You're did gonna like, call me out in court. <laughs> With love, sir. Oh boy, should we move on to the next one then? <laughs> yes, feel free. <laughs> right. Well, we we switched to from color to black and white, or barely color, really, to to black and white, and back to 1953, and uh, uh, Ugetsu. The movie Ugetsu, a.k.a. Tales of a Pale and Mysterious Moon After the Rain. Which is the title I saw it under when it was screened on TV many moons ago. And when, and when I wanted to find it on DVD, I, uh, I only know of a poetic title. And then it was just put out as Ugetsu, so it took a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this movie from 1953 by Japanese director Kenji Mitsuguchi. Mitsuguchi, yes. Uh, this uh, the film set in medieval Japan uh, stars people I'm not familiar with, but I'm sure others are: uh, Masayuki Mori and Machiko Kyu. And it's inspired by short stories by actually both Japanese a Japanese writer, a French writer. Uh, Japanese one is Ueda Akinari, and the other one is uh, Guy de Maupassant. And uh, it's the most celebrated film of the director and regarded by critics as a masterwork of Japanese cinema and uh, was awarded at the Venice Film Festival in 1953 with The Silver Lion, which actually opens the film, a shot of The Silver Lion, on the Criterion DVD. It actually, they displayed that before the film, so obviously uh, that was a print made uh, after after the film was uh, hailed. And uh, it's actually... Before we get in, in, into the film, uh, I have a few paragraphs about the director because I think it's it's interesting his uh, trans, uh, different transitions in quite a long career. Um, he was born in 1898 and died in 1956, which was only three years after Bugetsu. And uh, it was a career that started in the late 20s and lasting, you know, uh, obviously until the late 90s. And... Uh, he, he entered as an actor in the industry, but soon became a director at the Nikatsu Corporation. And I guess Nikatsu still is alive today because I think they are behind uh, Machine Girl, among other things. I think Nikatsu's name are is attached to that film. Hmm. I believe and, uh, Adam Terrell uh, knows people from Nikatsu. Mm-hmm. And I think they, I, I think they've been up and down in terms of uh, finance and stuff like that because they, they made this movie with. Uh, uh, what was that called? Uh, Setting Sun, I believe, with um, uh, uh, that uh, American actress. I can't uh, remember her name now. But the other person that was in this movie was uh, Yun Byu. He played a Shanghai gangster in this Japanese uh, movie, uh, Setting Sun. But that movie sunk Nikatsu again after they tried to make a comeback. That sunk them again, and apparently they're up and running again. Now with uh, Chipo cult uh, cult-esque splatter films so there you go mm-hmm. uh, so back to Kenji Mitsuguchi he directed over 50 films uh, between ni- the 20s and 30s but many of many of them are now lost and uh, he, he sort of made he had different eras uh, and different uh, filmmaking style 
So he, he made what's called apparently Keiko Eiga or translated as Tendency Films, which was a name given to socially conscious left-leaning films produced in Japan. And uh, he explored his socialist tendencies, obviously, which was early films and then middle films. He directed like what's called New Realism, which was, you know, social documents of a change in Japan. And uh, it was during this time he developed that uh, a signature of his, which is evident in, sometimes in Ugetsu, this one scene, one shot approach to cinema, which was made... You know, there's examples of this in Alfred Hitchcock's uh, Rope. They designed that as a one-shot film, but it's obviously where all the cuts are because they zoom in on the coffin that is in Rope all the time. <laughs> they zoom into that and zoom out. But, you know, it's an early early appearance of, uh, of that kind of technique, uh, which uh, works fine. I think Rope is a pretty decent film. And... Uh, you know, Mitsuguchi also worked during the war years, obviously, and uh, he had to make uh, compromises for the military government, so he made movies with uh, propaganda uh, inserted here and there. But uh, we're, now, we're now up until the 50s and approaching Ugetsu, and he uh, started directing period drama, or as it's apparently called, uh, Jidai Kiki. Uh, period dramas remade from stories from Japanese folklore or period history, and uh, started making some really acclaimed films like The Life of Uharu and uh, uh, finally uh, Ugetsu which we're at now and uh, a few years later he died uh, of uh, leukemia but uh, it's now recognized as one of you know the three masters of Japanese cinema uh, together with uh, Utsu and uh, that uh, guy that no one knows Akira Kurosawa <laughs> hey uh, I, I, I think I can read you mean uh, but so, brief, uh, brief plot then before we discuss the movies and start fighting again. Mm -hmm. uh, so, in the civil wars of the 16th century, century Japan, two ambitious peasants wants to make their fortunes. Uh, the potter, uh, Genjuri, intends to sell his wares for vast profits in the local city, while his brother-in-law, Tobei, wishes to become a samurai. And um, their respective adventures... Uh, are covered as well as the lives of their wives left behind. Mm -hmm. So, Michael, <laughs> Michael Ostu. <laughs> Mike goes first. Well, you know, Ken, you know I said you owe me one hour, 40 minutes and 52 seconds. <laughs> and we're now even. <laughs> yes. Okay. Because I get you, it was brilliant mm -hmm. on the whole. I absolutely loved it. Um, see, this is what Dark Water didn't do for me, is that... You start off and instantly, I mean, you don't have to love them, but you're engaging with the characters. They're interesting. Gendro is an interesting character. Then you've got the, the kind of family set up. There's the, the, uh, there's the war starting and the, the, uh, you know, the fear of the troops arriving in the village. There's Tobai, his brother, who uh, <laughs> is obsessed with being a samurai. Wild mm. animals. Both of them, really. You know, we, ha we have to make money, money, fortune, money, money, money. Yes, yeah, so instantly it's interesting and it looks great and totally sucked into the story and one of the things I really liked about it was that if I didn't, if you hadn't already told me, you know, that I was watching a, obviously a J-horror film because I was watching it for, for this, for the Joff, mm. um, I wouldn't have known that. Yeah, it mm -hmm. comes quite late in the film. Uh, the, the plot I read doesn't really signal that, but... Uh... 
they one of the characters, the the Kanjiro character, encounters a well, one of his some of his pottery is sold to this um, this uh, lady who asks him to deliver it to her to her palace in the mountain or whatever you call it, and uh, it, it's the evidence of uh, sort of a, an enchantment of a ghost of a human, possibly. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't signpost that. It doesn't say, "Oh, here's some creepy music." Oh, this is a oh. horror film. This is. No way. It's it's just it's a drama, really engaging, engrossing drama. But suddenly, that kind of very subtly and skillfully just slides into a kind of. Um, I mean, it's not going to make you jump, kind of horror or gory, but it, it's kind of you know, it's kind of creepy and and tragic. Um, especially the the nurse that looks after the uh, the lady of the uh, palace or whatever the yeah. estate is. Yeah, uh, it goes man, yeah, she's particularly creepy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's a few things I'm not I weren't sure about. One, the the, the Tobai storyline, his brother who wants to be the samurai, mm. without giving too much away from that. It kind of that story seems to come to nothing. It's kind of, you know, it's a second-line second, uh, second line story to the main one, which is Genjiro and his wife Miyagi and their son, Genichi. But it, it builds up nicely, but then the ending, it, it feels like it's just... Um, it, almost as if they ran out of time or something, or they just couldn't be bothered in the end with that story, and it just kind of finishes. Mm-hmm. And I felt so a little quite bit... it's a quite rise and fall without revealing the details. It's quite, quite a fast... Uh, fast development in that regard yeah yeah well, yes, but, but Tobe, Tobe wants a fast development he wants up there right away you know give he wants the injection right away rather than you know the process to well, get yeah. to the end well I know, I know the rise is certainly quick but it, it's just the way it is yeah it's just the after from that bit is um, mm-hmm. I don't know it, it feels a little bit um, felt a little bit short changed to be honest and uh, uh, actually, uh, sorry, uh, if you listen to the, the commentary on the Criterion DVD by Tony Raines, he mentions that uh, uh, the director faced some, he had to make some compromises about his vision. And I, I don't remember the details if this was one of the aspect that, aspects that they didn't agree upon, him and his producer, but uh, there is evidence of that in the film. Having said that, he was not the kind of guy that, you know, put up a fight, the Terry Gilliam-esque, uh, you know, for his extra four minutes of Brazil, you know. It was not that, it was not kind of, uh, that kind of fight. His producer was a friend, and if his friend felt that for the sake of uh, commercial uh, commercial success and stuff like that, if he deemed it was a good suggestion to do a certain thing, then he went with it. So, so he, he, he played the game. Anyway. And the only other thing that I can, that I would consider criticism, although not necessarily a criticism, depending on how anyone look at it, is uh, the film's quite conformist and anti-ambition, it would seem, in the end. Through, through the, you know, the way the events unfold, and the message seems to be kind of, you know, anti-ambition. Hmm. I can see where you're coming from. Yeah, it's but not, it's not but a message then again, I would necessarily agree with, but it's, in, it's I mean... It's in, sort of a negative, but it's not. It's not poor filmmaking or anything, or a bad story decision. Mm-hmm. I I took that as 
uh, I can see where you're coming from, but I took that as they, 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 there's a line at the beginning of the film where uh, Genjiro's wife Miyagi says that they, they, you know, we we don't have to be this desperate because we we're fine making pottery and we're getting money, and it's basically the the, the threat of the soldiers is one thing, but I think that was the perspective that I attached to and and, and latched onto that. Uh, she, she's the voice of reason in a way, and uh, Genjiro and Tobey are, you know, painted this picture of, you know, we have to make money now before the soldiers come, basically. Uh, mm-hmm. But I can see where it's coming from, Mike. Uh, well, there's certainly different ways to read it, which is kind of, uh, you know, a sign of a good drama. It's not kind of force feeding you stuff. But, yeah, for me, I, I th- think, in my part, the film started off slowly. Not mainly only through the way that I kind of actually fell asleep, but I think maybe it was because I was far too comfortable in the bed. So, as soon as I was lying on the floor, my interest in the movie picked right up. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a key. A movie viewing key. Mm -hmm. No bad at all. We have many more reasons why you shouldn't really be hosting a podcast, but... um, Yes, this definitely is a really good film. There's, because I think there's a point to it where I found what's it, the Seven Samurai, like that film. When I was watching that, that just it's just like a black and white Japanese film, filmed ages ago. And for me, that was really up and down. Like, God, you're just sitting there and you stop watching the film, you just keep looking and it's like, God, this is so old. And, like, you just lose interest in the film, but maybe that's because it's like five hours long. I do remember a point where, basically when the film did f- finish, it was night time. I was like... <laughs> and I had managed to actually completely reformat the hard drive on my PC, which usually takes it like a day and a half. Like, <laughs> Jesus. Well, it so gets to then only a 90 minute film. Yeah, so that helped, <laughs> but I just, I really picked up on the characters as well, I loved the ambition of the lead character on, like, when they were being raided at the start, and all, like, you could see him, like, he, just the greed in his character, that he was, like, he was risking his life to go back, just to make sure, like, his pots were, like, all his pottery was, like, doesn't get, no, to make sure the fire doesn't go out, Yeah, and... It's like his his wife's the wives in the film are basically the voices of reason. They're trying to explain to him like you're risking your life for this, and I do love how it basically becomes ironic by the end of the film. Yeah, and it's it's important that that's mentioned multiple mm-hmm. times. Uh, multiple times actually the uh, the subject of women in this in this film because that that was a theme of the director too. He sided with. You know the view of women and sort of try to portray, portray them in a, I guess, an active way and uh, you know, an intelligent way. And mm-hmm. uh, this is part of Ugetsu as well, so uh, which is a well done aspect to it. Mm-hmm. It's certainly a thinking man's piece, but a clear movie. You understand the movie. I, I really yeah. dug that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and I think it stands out even. Well, it works out even better in the subplot where it's how Toby's trying to get his claim to fame. 
like all he wants to do is to become a famous samurai so he could like impress his wife <laughs> and by the time you get to the end of the movie you're like well but I also more fully of the story is <laughs> stop trying to impress your wife so it's not gonna happen no it's a definitely a childish character uh, I mean yes uh, definitely that's like the you know uh, definitely the guy who wants the injection and not the process of getting to a position Mm-hmm. And it sort of fails for him uh, quite uh, miserably. Uh, uh, backfires, if you will. Again, mm-hmm. without uh, revealing anything. Too much, yeah. But it's, it's, it's really common character fates, you know, in movies in general, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. Rise and fall, if you will. But, yeah, when watching the film, how you mentioned earlier on how basically that storyline kind of started off really well then kind of ended a bit abrupt but I felt the same there was a point in the film where I just thought well when they're focusing this much on the leading character the Toby story was finished because there, 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 one, one, there was that scene and you're like okay I, I guess it could have finished that way but then it just cuts on to give you like a 20 second shot like that was their closure like mm. well Okay, <laughs> so that's how they closed it. But yeah, definitely a highly recommended film. And deserving of its um, uh, rep and, and status uh, still today. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of the same when I watched it uh, many moons ago. It was on, you know, uh, they, they showed like four movie, Japanese movies in four weeks on TV. One was this, and one of the others was uh, Hara Kiri, which is a great fucking film. This really slow building uh, uh, flashback style film, black and white, widescreen, really beautiful. Uh, which is a re- recommendation uh, in itself, uh, Harakiri. Hmm. But uh, yeah, just to I guess sh- shortly go over my my notes here. You know, it's you guys have some summed it up really, really, really well, but. You know, of course, I, I really dug this film. I think it's excellent, still excellent, and uh, I like that it's you know a human real issues blended with sort of an eerie ghost story. Uh, you know, it's early on, as we discussed, it, this uh, bl- the bl- the greed that blinds characters is very mm-hmm. evident, and the seduction. You know, they want to be. They want to have the riches, and therefore are not. Um, they do not mind uh, the seduction of this world, which is mm-hmm. not always the best. <laughs> the best thing, and uh, the. Uh, I, I, I think I said this, but I, I like that the film is very uh, vocal and very expository. Uh, be without you know being a movie that stops to explain the plot, but but it's still mm. the. They talk quite a bit about what is happening in the film. What is the character? What are the characters doing? Uh, so, so you're with the film without, you know, it, it's not the director standing beside you. You know, I'm going to give you the clip notes of what is happening in the film, uh, mm-hmm. happening in the film now. And uh, I quite also dug that it's a pretty large movie and also small at suitable times. Just uh, all up until like the first scene and the big city where Genjiro is selling his pottery, uh, the movie has been very small because it's set in a village and you mm-hmm. know when the when the soldiers come, you know it's not a 
you know, a, a big widescreen uh, battlefield march towards the village. They just enter the village. It feels like ten soldiers, but they're obviously all over the village and raiding, mm-hmm. uh, raiding them and stuff like that. Uh, and uh, to to again touch upon the ghost angle of the film. Uh, I believe that Tony Raines on the commentary, commentary talked about the source material actually being connected somewhat to the Choi Hark film, a Green Snake, which he made. It's sort of a similar kind of source material, hmm. uh, which is the Hong Kong connection uh, in mm-hmm. this one. Uh, but I like though that when the movie, the, the movie keeps you know keeps us within this ghost angle for quite some time. That is this wonderful scene where. Where Gendure is all of a sudden, you know, in a clear field having a picnic with this uh, lady of the Wakasa Manor. And it seems like in these times where there's chaos all over the place, where in the hell did they find this, you know, clear looking, untouched landscape? Mm-hmm. But within that scene, he says to himself, I, I don't care if you're a ghost, this is paradise. <laughs> Just thought was kind of interesting. He. He's also the one of these characters that doesn't care if he's being seduced. It is him. Mm-hmm. But uh, the movie, of course, eventually switches back to showcase the reality. And mm. uh, it's also where the movie turns really disturbing for me. Because uh, it, uh, yeah, there, there, there's a certain certain darkness on display that because you're invested in the film, it, uh, it's uh, quite felt. But, but it's connected firmly to what's established in the beginning about the characters the women and the men and uh, it's a it's an excellent through line mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it has a and the moral of the story is kind of ending and ending exactly. real but uh, I, I think it's uh, done very well understated and clear mm-hmm. I would come back to that it's it's not expository in the wrong in the wrong way it's perfectly perfectly done mm-hmm at one point I really did think there was going to be like the introduction of like a Lam Chi Ying style Taoist priest when yeah. how was like I think it did ring a lot of bells with Mr. Vampire at points but I'm sure this happened in like a billion films where a man's been seduced by like a ghost mm. so it'd be unfair just to say it was like so similar to this one film but it was when he was when somebody's actually pointing out to him, he's like, God, like your face looks like there's a look of death in your face. And I was expecting, like, maybe like Lam Ching will just hop over the wall the new is like big bag of coins, but nah. <laughs> in the Redux version of the mm-hmm. film. Where the two have been edited together. <laughs> it suddenly cuts into colour. It's like, what? Colour and black and white elements. Mm hmm. And a lot of and, and a lot of ah yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. no never never never. So what uh, the score <laughs> one all sort of <laughs> yeah between Mike Redeem and Ken. Yourself, Ken. Oh wow, thank you. Pew. No you would have been. You would have had a, a restless night tonight if that uh, hadn't been good. And I would have got, and I would have, uh, and you and I would have had a forum war fight style bout kind of thing, and <laughs> and ne- and never agreed upon. We would never agreed upon because you do not do that on a forum. That uh, your opinion is okay and my mine is also okay. We would never do that because that would not be proper forum forum behavior. Mm-hmm. 
you have to be a Nazi with your opinion, and I have to be a Nazi with my opinion. <laughs> so on and so on and so on and so on and so on. Fun stuff. Yeah. So, um, I think we're going to have a little break here. Go now! Anime is the word for animation in Japan. Good start. Um, <laughs> Japanese animation in the rest of the world, but, you know, anime is just the name for it. Um, dates back to about 1917. And in addition to uh, manga, which is the, the comic books, which are hugely popular in Japan, they sell millions upon millions of copies. Um, also hugely popular around the world as well. Mm-hmm. Um, anime either come out of television series or theatrical movies or or uh, OAVs, original animation video. Um, ham- <laughs> to be hand-drawn or computer animated. Um, during the 70s, there was a surge of growth in the popularity of manga, especially by uh, Samu Tezuka, who uh, created Astro Boy, which is a oh. really famous uh, character. Um, I believe this year, uh, Imagi Studios are bringing it, who, people who did... Uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, recent animated film, are mm-hmm. uh, bringing out an Astro Boy CGI film. Yeah, could, could be quite interesting. Um, I believe Walt Disney was a big fan of Astro Boy as well. I think he, him, and Tetsuka met. I don't know how many times, but I know that they, they met before. And, and Walt Disney said he wanted to make a film. Uh, based on a character that was like Astro Boy he's a big fan of it um, well Tezuka's known as a, is, is a huge legend in the field and god of manga it says here um, and he, 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 you know, he um, inspired a lot of other people as well a bit like Disney I think um, the giant robot genre Mecha which uh, is always fun um Took shape under under Tezuka, and uh, international exposure of adaptations in the 80s gained interest in uh, foreign markets, and it obviously grew in the 90s and 2000s. Indeed, in Britain on DVD, although you know kung fu films and, and you know certain type of action Asian movies seem to be dwindling in interest um, and releases, anime just keeps on flooding through. Mm-hmm. There are tons of anime series and films and uh, manga books being released and sold. Um, well, the difference in visual style and character design from artist to artist and studio to studio, the common approach is the large eyes, eyes style drawn in many anime and manga characters. Um, it's quite a popular approach. It's something called masking, where you keep, like, say, the main character uh, really simple feature-wise which kind of helps for viewers to um, kind of see themselves in the main character. They're not as easily defined, so you can kind of put your own personality and, and your own interpretation of things into the character, whereas uh, background details and things can be very detailed, and other characters are very detailed, in fact. Um, Tezuka was inspired by um, Betty Boo and Mickey Mouse and, and Bambi. The, the large eyes and the simple expressions, you know, the simple character designs um, were good for showing distinct emotions. 
you you mentioned like uh, once upon a time you, you you were working. I guess you were saying you you were trying to write the comic book rather than draw, or do you do you draw yourself at all? No, no, no. I've been writing a few comic books and stuff. Right. Have have you ever you know ha has that been part of your inspiration at all, uh, mangas? What well, I haven't read any, to be perfectly honest. Um, okay. So that's a no. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I've wanted to though. I'm mean, I'm interested in it, but. The thing about comic books is there's, there's just so many releases out just in, in, in you know, um, European and American books. There's, there's hundreds that are popping up every month and trade paperbacks and stuff. And ditto mm -hmm. for a manga that's just incredibly hard to keep track of what's being released or find enough time to read as much of the stuff as you want to. It's, all, it's kind of the same for anime for me overall, to be honest, because uh, I've watched some anime films which... I've kind of enjoyed, but it's never done the requisite um, sock removal to make me really want to get into the genre. And when I've got a ton of Shaw Brothers and Kung Fu and 80s action films and horror films and things like that to watch, it's kind of got pushed down. Because um, I've only really, springing to mind, I think I've seen a few episodes of Chobits kind of a fun um, anime series and I've seen mm. Akira yeah it's kind of it's, you know it's requisite viewing it's, mm -hmm. especially if you're a student oh man you've got to watch Akira um, <laughs> and Ninja Scroll which is another kind of oh you got to watch Ninja Scroll yeah that was the exact same thing for me in high school <laughs> so I bought both of them on videotape and basically everyone was, all the guys were passed around in class like one would watch one night, bring them in the next day, hand them over. Hey, that was fucking spot on the way you said that there. I wonder, I wonder how Akira made it into that, into students' frame of mind because it's when you watch it, it's a really difficult fucking film to to understand, as it turns out. You know, you have to be, you know, uh, by the end, it's quite, uh, mm -hmm. quite confusing. But still, I, I I love it personally, but uh, it's not you know an easy. Uh, digestible uh, watch. Yeah. Well, I think there's three things there which make it prime fodder for students and uh, stoners. It looks mm -hmm. really cool in a cyberpunk kind of way. Like a Blade Runner-ish, but animated, what with the red bike and everything. Yeah. Two, it's got some crazy violence in it. Mm -hmm. And people exploding and things like that. And uh, three... It's just kind of, you know, it's a pretty uh, fucked up story. Yeah. I think all those three things kind of combine to make a... Well, well you mentioned Stoner, uh, you know, then I understood why it could <laughs> be connected to students as well, so... Sit around going, whoa! <laughs> Beavis and Butthead style. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I was yes, never... So... Oh, I'm sorry. No, go on, carry on. Yeah, and I was just gonna say that uh, I can't. I can't come from the same viewpoint as you. As anime has always, you know, many of my friends watched it, and they had like tons of tapes, which was kind of a ripoff for us buying because they released like two 20-minute episodes of you know Crime Freeman or Gaiva on British uh, release tapes, and we have to had to pay huge amounts of money for for them. And I guess it was the same back then in, in like the 90s. They knew how to, you know, really squeeze something, uh, squeeze something out of you. 
especially Gaiba, that was like one episode per take, and that was 20 minutes. Oh, that's so. the other one. You just reminded me of that, well done, Ken. Um, at, at university, uh, my friend had a big thing for Gaiva. And so it was a bit like that. He had about 10 billion tapes lying around and insisted on making us watch all the episodes. <laughs> Which my other friend, because I think it, have you watched Gaiva, Stu? Uh, no, that's another one I'll probably have to catch up with. Right, it's, it's like this weener little kid who um, can kind of turn himself into a massive ass-kicking robot kind mm -hmm. of thing. And uh, my other friend, his attitude was, why the hell would he go back to being the weener kid? <laughs> Just be the big fuck-off robot and smash stuff up. You kind of imagine himself as a big, big robot having his own kind of kingdom with a bunch of slaves and stuff, sitting on his robot throne. Yeah, yeah so the thing was that he, he had the option to to be transformed at uh, whatever time he liked, yeah? Because I don't remember if it was, it was part of an involuntary thing as well. Wasn't he like the Incredible Hulk if he got angry? Uh, uh, I don't remember specifically, but... Uh, if he was saying that, then the story probably was that he could change into a robot at uh, whatever time he liked. So. Mm. Good point. <laughs> yeah, so I kind of... This has been good, kind of... Um, because to be honest, the way I picked the films, I picked, first of all, Paprika. Just because I read um, a review on Twitch that really liked it. And so mm -hmm. I thought, I'll grab that, it's fairly modern. And then I went for Blood the Last Vampire, um, only because we chatted to Chris Jones and who who's a stuntman who appears in the, the live-action version of Blood the Last Vampire, starring Junji Hume, aka Gianna Jun, <laughs> which is going to be released uh, in on June the 12th in Britain, and apparently May in Japan, possibly March in America. But that was delayed from last year, which kind of suggests that the film might suck ass. Mm -hmm. And the thing, if they're expecting it to come out of the cinemas next month, shouldn't there have been at least a good couple of trailers online by now? Because I think that's the first of the Japanese websites just been launched, and it's just got one big still shot. There's no actual website for it, so yeah, I'm thinking it, it's probably getting pushed back to the summer. Like that Ooh. and Dragon Ball at the same time. Well, well, you know, it might have uh, enough of a following that they don't need to put out teaser trailers in advance either. So, you know, to, to keep it sort of fair and balanced, may maybe they're just sure, sure of its potential. We are not going to do any promotion. <laughs> We're just going to take down the official website. How about that? <laughs> then it out into the cinemas. The only time we'll ever notice it, that it came out was when it's in like the red video rental shops. Like, when the hell did that come out? So, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I don't think it's destined towards a Dragon Ball failure. But then again, you never know. It might be the two, uh, uh, you know, um, animated oh God, adaptations I, that yeah. will, you know, crash and burn. Well, I, I don't wish any film to have the fate that Dragon Ball will have. Well, the thing I, is, though, <laughs> Dragon Ball has momentum to crash and burn. Yeah. Whereas Blood the Last Vampire <laughs> has no momentum, so it's probably just going to plop out and then squelch off into a dark corner. The, the old pop and squelch. <laughs> yes, that fluid motion. Yeah. 
by the way, guys, just to quickly finish my thought on uh, on my experience with anime, and I, I've sort of kept with the classics, if you will, but but those are the ones I've liked, the sort of thinking man's pieces, if you will, the, the weird pieces, Akira, Ghost in the Shell, which I fucking loved, uh, and still love to this day, even though it's a talky, 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 talky film. Short though, but talky. Uh, <laughs> and... and uh, you know, it's all this talk about the, what what is intelligence, what what is the what is the soul? Uh, you know, uh, does a cyborg have a soul and so forth? But it works in that film. The sequel, however, is ooh, I saw that recently. I was so disappointed with the sequel to Ghost in the Shell. Mm-hmm. That that was talking times one hundred, and they thought they were still intelligent. They just made compared to the first one, was that was that was very clear. The second one was just totally muddled and confusing and bad. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but, but Mamoru Oshii, the director of that film uh, and Ghost in the Shell, I do like and his anime a- Angel's Egg, which has no talking I love as well. Uh, but also fan favorites like Fist of the North Star, yeah, the animated one. It's always fun to revisit. And uh, But the thing I probably never will watch because it doesn't appeal to me at all and this might surprise people is uh, Hentai. The, the, the anime porn. Oh, right, uh, aye, that's a no-no for me. Uh, you know, the demon sex and, uh, uh, you know, the rapes and the abuse and abuses and stuff. Uh, it's, I don't know, it doesn't appeal to me despite me watching, you know, regular movies with that content in a way. But uh, it just doesn't do it for me, so... It has to be live action for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> very, well, very, very true. thing we've yet to mention obviously is um, in recent years massively popular are the Studio Ghibli films mm-hmm. which obviously we mentioned a few times on uh, over the course of the uh, Puffing by Stu who's a bit of a fan yeah because that was what I was basically going to say when it comes to anime for me I've not looked any further well any further past than the Studio Ghibli films because that probably is the only thing I'm following with the anime genre at the moment because I'll keep an eye out for their next film but I'm not synced up with the guys that have done uh, Ghost in the Shell I'm not looking out for their latest films or the dude that went and done Tokyo Godfather and Paprika I'm not urgently waiting to see their next film but yeah for some reason they just have this like just high stamp of well high quality they're all, all their films. Always, uh, they're all accessible to you as well, which is a yeah. you know a good thing. You don't have to import them, mm-hmm. and and the weight is always worth it in a way because the cinema cinema showings you know doesn't take two years after it's shown in Japan to reach the UK or whatever mm-hmm. uh, normally anyway. So uh, it's accessible, which is a good thing. Yeah, it will be. And when it comes to the sort of the anime TV series thing which is insanely popular in the UK is to the point where I kind of that actually puts me off because I've watched probably the first three discs of the Full Metal Alchemist anime and that's a good show sure I think it's like a 20, 20 minutes each episode but for this it's all separate DVDs there's say four, five episodes on one disc and then like there's, when you go into like HMV there's like 20, no there's like 10 different releases, like part 1, part 2 part 3, going all the way up to 10 like man, could have no just been one big old box set 
Because mm. it's only really like an hour's worth you're getting on one disc. But it's released just hugely. And now, like, they've got TV movies of it and all. And it's like, ah, can I catch up with you? Then there's all the Nutero, Naturo stuff. The ninja guy with blonde hair. That, which also reminds me of the other show, Bleach and Cowboy Bebop. There's, there's so much. <laughs> That's too much for me. <laughs> just like, there is not enough time on Earth to get through all this stuff. Especially TV series, obviously. Yeah. yeah. It's better and to so sometimes keep it within, you know, one feature, albeit if it's over two hours, you know, still mm. one feature story. And there's like half a dozen big old bulky box sets of like Ghost in the Shell, something, something, like two gig, blah, blah, blah. I can't yeah, remember. The, stand the standalone complex TV series. Ah, that's it, that's it. Yeah. I mean, they've got like. There's six lame out by now, and it's like, God Almighty! Welcome to the world of DVD. It's basically and, you have, and, you have and to next, <laughs> and next Blu-ray. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, oh. so you're basically going to have to abandon one genre for another. Like, if you want to catch up with anime, you're basically going to have to stop watching everything else. <laughs> Good point. But yeah, I'll. Def well, I'll, I'm, I'll keep trying because. This stuff is insanely available in the UK, so like it's everywhere. These things have got bigger like sections and shops rather than world cinema. This is overtaken, so it's easily accessible for us. So yeah, I'll get around to the good stuff. But yeah, come on, I think it's time we start talking about our films for tonight. So what's the first one, Mike? It's a top ten stream. Ah, start. it's a list! Start, start that music! Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck! Okay, boom, go for it. Boom, 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 boom. You better be using the music still, Stu, because I'm going to look like a right tit if you ain't. Have you listened to like our last three podcasts? No. No music. Ken! You, you don't tell him. <laughs> Maybe. <Okay. laughs> Maybe chicka there is. Chicka boom, chicka boom, chicka boom, chicka. Right then, okay. what I've got here is the top ten, according to the Anime News Network, um, top 10 best rated movies or original video movies in anime calculated using the Bayesian method the what? which if what? R is the average of the anime and V is the number of the votes for the anime M is the minimum votes required to be listed and C the mean votes across the whole report then that the Bayesian rating equals V divided by V plus M times R plus M divided by V plus M times C Fuck them. <laughs> Number 10. <laughs> My Neighbor Totoro. Hey. Number 9. Nausicaa. Bally hey. in the Wind. Number 8. 5 centimeters per second. <laughs> Number 7. Okay. Kara no Kyuke. The Garden of Sinners. Number 6. Grave of the Fireflies. God, that was depression on a disc. <laughs> I can't believe they made a live action adaption. Adaption? Aye, that was the right word. Yeah. To that film. Like, man. Impression on two discs now. Yes. <laughs> Number five, Legend of Galactic Heroes. Number four, Princess Mononoke. Number four, well, right. Number three, <laughs> The Girl Who Leapt Through Time. Seems pretty self explanatory. Number mm -hmm. two, Spirited Away. And number one, Samurai X, Trust and Betrayal. 
interesting list. Mm-hmm. Yes, if you want to hit what a lot of uh, thousands of anime fan- fans believe are the best uh, films, you tend to look out for. Yeah. All right, then, so and, and, the review... and you paint the picture that there's so much out there, then no wonder Akira or Ghost in the Shell got left out of the top ten. You know, and, and it's a fan okay. voting. Alright, so we're on, we're on to Paprika, which was yeah, our first film we're going to talk about, anime. Um, mm-hmm. The general plot of that is uh, Atsuko and uh, well, he's a psychiatrist uses advanced technology stood in the human mind. Um, Takita as well is, uh, uh, is is the big fat genius behind it, um, mm-hmm. and so her and big fat genius have developed a machine that allows you uh, to see people's dreams um, and enter people's dreams called the DC Mini. Um, Asuka also has a double called Paprika, who's kind of like a high-pitched. Um, bubbly, spunky version of uh, Asuka um, who uses the uh, DC Mini to find out the truth about people and treat them uh, kind of, you know, their psychiatric problems and things. Um, mm. Unfortunately, a thief steals the DC Mini and uh, starts sending a crazy dream out to loads of people and right, yeah, you've got to watch it. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of film that there's no point really trying to explain. Just put it on and watch it. Yeah. Um, I absolutely loved this film. I mean, really loved it. Mm-hmm. So much so, even though I already own the DVD, I'm going to go out and get the Blu-ray. <laughs> uh, that would look pretty sweet on Blu-ray. The details, yeah. you know, there's not shortage of stuff uh, drawn. <laughs> this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the, the animation, first point to mention, which I can, is, is the animation is uh, and the drawing is stunning on this film. So good, so bright, and, and uh, just so much going on. And a real yeah. nice uh, melding of the kind of computerized CG effort along with the traditional kind of hand drawn animation. It's really used very, very well in this film. Um, also, the music, yes, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, on the DVD, on the well, it's a bit of a pain because it's um, there's an audio commentary on there from the director and a couple of other people. Um, one of whom I think is the pr- production designer and the um, the musician Susumu uh, Hirasawa. He's like an electro pop artist from Japan. Um, they talk about on there how um, Hirasawa's music was actually a big inspiration on um, Satoshi Kon, the director, to make the film. Um, so the music's great, the animation's terrific. The film is incredibly fast-paced. Yeah. There is always something going on. There's no way you could just, you know lose focus for a minute and, and do something else because you would have missed about two plot turns and uh, five characters. Mm-hmm. It's so good. Um, I found that the characters to start with kind of seemed a little bit... There was a little 
the kind of cranky boss and the hard-nosed uh, lead character and things like that. But um, and the kind of the jolly fat man. Yep. Um, but as it goes on, you kind of you really grow. The characters really grow, and, and it um, they become really endearing, and it, it just it's got a really good momentum to it. Um, mm. One other thing I really liked about it as well is this has to be an anime. There's no oh, other way yeah. you could do this film. Mm-hmm. There is no way you could do the film like it is and as a live-action film because. One, it would take an assload of uh, CG effects. Yeah. And no movie studio would pay a hundred million dollars to make this film <laughs> because they'd be going, "What?" And he does what? <laughs> and they do what? What? Because it really is a proper kind of uh, mind hump. Mhm. <laughs> it's just full of. Um, it's based in the dream world. Um, well, a, a kind of mix of dream and reality, and so it's kind of about what reality is and, and mm-hmm. how we experience dreams and what they mean and things like that. So it's just um, it's just all over the place. And, and you know, you've got a, a kind of parade of um, household appliances. <laughs> That bound down the uh, bound down the street and basically bound anywhere into mm-hmm. a cinema down a street like a big carnival with a ticker tape parade and this awesome music pounding through. Yeah, kind of creepy uh, and wonderful at the same time. That uh, uh, recurring image in the film. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good way to describe it. I think creepy and kind of lovable and wonderful at the same time. But the, on, on the audio commentary, the, um, one of the guys on there described it quite well when he said, because there's an intro in a circus, yeah. and he said, three clowns, you know, children find funny, 100 clowns would be quite scary. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of got a point. Yeah, it's just that, and like, some of the best parts of that movie is just, well, for me, I could just sit and rewatch like the first five minutes, and then the ending film sequence, like where it is basically is the the beginning played again, but it follows through. Like, I just that and the music and how it quickly cuts from the jungle to the train to the to the hotel, like that shit just yeah, blew me away. The jungle bit, I loved. I loved. I loved out loud when that <laughs> ended because it was so, so, someone's fantasy, and it makes sense uh, because the cop character was into movies. Yeah, and that's kind of you know his Tarzan fantasy. Uh, uh, that, that was lovely. The quick switch between scenarios and mm-hmm. and then the dark, uh, the, the dark uh, end, uh, end to that uh, recurring scenario. Yeah, that uh, sequence of events. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But uh, yeah, that it's um, really is an amazing film because I I basically uh, rented it to see it. But now I'd definitely go out and buy the DVD for myself because it'd be something I'd just have to show my friends who like the genre but haven't seen this yet. Mm. So sort of like things you've seen nothing yet. It is a good introduction, I think. 
because mm-hmm. one of those mangas uh, or animes that I, it's uh, it's abstract as abstract as hell, but still clear. Because you do get it. It's not like a visual feast only, mm-hmm. uh, where you don't get anything. It's a really good balance, as Mike said. You know, uh, there are characters, there are humans in this film. Yeah, that matter. Yeah, but I, th- I think if you choose to like watch the trailer, f- like before going taking the plunge into seeing the movie, you may be like looking at it expecting like one big old mind fuck. Because, yeah, if that film had to be summed into like a two-minute trailer, it'll look really weird. They can't really focus too much on the story, but like it's just ah, it's this amazing game. Get a game. Sorry, I keep making the comparison to this film and to the Katamari video games with the music and the one scene where it's like everything's bundled together going down the street. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, but it's interesting though that it was based on a novel rather than... Uh, uh, it was not a manga adaptation until later. Or around mm-hmm. two years out of a novel. So, uh, you know, they... they there was probably some quite great fantasy in the writing already, and then the manga adaptation took that to its logical conclusion, and then the anime adaptation took that to its, uh, you know, and so forth and so forth. They it would be interesting to read it actually to yes. see how how much would jump out out at you, uh, you know, how how it would be described basically, you know, the, the whole uh, parade there, how that would be described in the book because of a novel. Because if that's the centerpiece in the film and the manga, then it obviously must be in the in the four part uh, uh, four part novel as well. Mm-hmm. You would think, but 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 it's also it's also a common theme for the director Satoshi Kon to blend dreams and reality. He's done different things, more straightforward things, but they, they, this seems to be a pet theme for him to to explore and explore. And based on Paprika, I mean, I I would love to. Uh, uh, go with Millennium Actress or the television series Paranoia Agent to see mm-hmm. what, what kind of thing he he can bring you know, in different products uh, projects and Perfect Blue I've heard I've heard the title I recognize the title but I don't know if it's hailed as such uh, but that was that was his feature debut hmm. uh, yeah, I haven't I really heard yeah go on I think Perfect Blue won quite a lot of awards when it first hit kind of festival circuit back in the late 90s. So I'd heard it kind of um, held in high regard as far as I know amongst a lot of fans and critics of anime movies. Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting. But I read that it was turned into a feature film from a video uh, or OVA in the middle of production. So they obviously expanded it due to, I guess, they having some kind of special thing on their hands. Mm-hmm. And well, I yeah, think, um, I'm sorry. I was gonna say Darren Aronofsky did the Wrestler. Obviously, he's nominated for an Oscar at the moment. I believe he bought the rights for Perfect Blue, so that he could use a scene from it in uh, Requiem for a Dream. Ah, oh. gives me a, a reason to rewatch that film, mm-hmm. and not just for the as to ass scene. Uh. I haven't yeah. watched Requiem, so. <laughs> ah, okay. yeah, yeah, well, buy the unrated uh, version of Requiem for a Dream. And well, then. I don't remember that in Perfect Blue. <laughs> Not in Perfect Blue. 
But yeah, after a quick search onto Amazon, the novel of Paprika is coming out. For some reason, it's not actually coming out in the UK until April this year. But yeah, it's obviously been translated into the one book. And he's actually had a couple books out in the UK, as well as uh, Salomon, the, the Simonella Men. And, wait, no. Let's start that again. Uh, the Salmonella Men on Planet Porno. <laughs> like, well, what the... What's that about? Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it looks like Paprika is getting a release over here in the UK. Looks like this job as librarian might actually pay off. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome That's a terrible you, thing. It would be awesome if you're sitting at the counter with that book, you know, uh, standing straight up, with the title very prominently displayed. <laughs> what you reading? <laughs> Planet porno. <laughs> it's not what you think it is. <laughs> <laughs> but it's yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask. Um, have any of you guys seen? Well, actually, we just dis- we just discussed this shit. Any of his previous movies? Because the only one I've gotten around to seeing is Tokyo Godfathers. Anyone else seen that one? Oh, no, this is the first thing I've seen of Satoshi Kon. I've got um, mm. Paranoia Agent, the first first couple of episodes. On yeah, I'm kind of keen to somewhere. see that as well. But I haven't watched it yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Tokyo Godfathers is a really good film. It's I just it was just like a random rental because it was just basically suggested from a bunch of people who liked the anime genre. It says right, you should try this one, this one, and this one. And this it, this one's basically a straight drama. It doesn't like play with imagination much. It's just basically three very different homeless people finding a baby on New Year's Eve. And yeah, it's a. It's the sort of the film that will go back and show you how all three of them ended up becoming homeless. And how they basically have to work together to try and re- reunite the baby with the family. Wow. So it, it, is, it does go to show like sometimes these animes could go on to be some really like enthralling dramas. Because I do remember tearing up at that film. Like yes, shirt cries at cartoons. Yeah. We've heard it all before. nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, fuck uh, you, Mike. I didn't say there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> we heard the giggle. Your we heard the giggle. implied everything. <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> he knows your silence better than you know it. <laughs> but, yeah, Para- I think... Paranoia agent. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, so I'm... Definitely, kind of going to look back into this dude's like filmography now. And I'm going to stick a couple of them onto my rental list, or I might actually just go and do a blind buy. You never know. So, did did any of you see the Cell? By the way, the Jennifer Lopez film. Um, not share, in- share plot elements. Mm-hmm. I saw parts of it. I saw enough of it to like to see why it is kind of like. How it kind of seems similar. Obviously, saw the last half hour of it and was like, this shit's weird. Then I watched Paprika and I thought, this shit's weird. So, yes, there <laughs> is a connection. 
What about you, Mike? Uh, saying what? Did you say The Cell? If you saw... Uh, yeah. yeah. The, is that the Jennifer Lopez film? Yeah. Huh? But she all said, uh, like, a second ago. Nah, I haven't seen it. <laughs> yeah, kind yeah, anyway. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> You're calling him a cunt for not having seen the film? <laughs> What's this all about? Just get on with the show. <laughs> you don't like the Lopez, you cunt. <laughs> well. But what, what one aspect of Paprika that I uh, connected to the most, I guess, w- was, I guess for obvious reasons though, the, the Kotanawa character, the cop character, mm-hmm. and, his, and his journey to, you know, to move on from guilt and back to love, but love for movies again. It mm-hmm. was kind of his thing. And uh, I remember one subtitle went, uh, well, rather theme, but but, it's, but it was in the subtitles as well. Uh, was interesting that that they talked about a short fragment in need to be a big fragment again. You know, his short fragments in life needed to be you know expanded again and be connected, and you know for him to move on in life. And that means again the paprika deals with humans, despite it being this weird and wonderful, you know, fireworks display of 2D, 3D, dream reality world merging is just so flawless. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you, can, you can watch it and watch it and watch it. And, uh, and also it's a classic detective story as well. And uh, uh, the, the one aspect I loved the most was when uh, when the, the dream, I guess, reached normal people and they started talking randomly. You know, really randomly, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, well, I can't remember any verbatim examples, but I, I love you know the whole out of the blue <laughs> kind of thing that uh, you know even the chief uh, the chief uh, of uh, of the female character even was affected by this at one point, and they started mentioning these very random things and eventually going all nuts and trying to kill themselves. It's <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, very creative. Very creative, but uh, I, I went in. I went into Paprika knowing nothing, which was the best thing about it. I had never heard of it, and uh, I, I realized that it must have a huge following, and it, it deserves to have it. It's uh, it's absolutely wonderful, and mm. uh, not abstract in the Ghost in the Shell two kind of way. Yeah, you you get this. That's the most important thing because I think it's a risk when dealing with this this kind of visual anime. To get lost in, you know, uh, what you're really doing, what your purpose or, as a storyteller is about, and uh, the director there definitely kept this uh, one uh, perfectly aligned. I guess. Mm-hmm. I did actually. I had a quick peek at the trivia for the film, and I realised how there's all these scenes set in like a bar where it's where I think it's the cop actually visiting Paprika's website and it all kind of transforms into a bar room scene. Yeah, and the two the bartenders, bar. yeah, they're actually dubbed by the director and the, the original author of the novel. Right. And, like, and, 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 they, and they played a critical part in a way. I don't remember such and won't. And even if I did, that would be spoiling the film because they yeah. are more active during the end of the film. But I just remember the wonderful image of them, I guess, uh, beaten up a bit or... Uh, I don't remember if they were in bandages or not, but I just like, you know, their look. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, these bots, you would almost think they were, you know, uh, because they were part of a web website. Mm-hmm. Or some strange thing like that. Uh, 
this wonderful imagination. Yes. So, Mike, ready for our next film, or have you got another list you go whip it the new? Nope, we're straight on to uh, Blood the Last Vampire. I'm done with it. Which is our second film to watch and review. Um, it's set in Japan in 1966. Uh, the main character is Saya, who's uh, part of a secret team out to destroy demons. Um, and she's set to cover at an uh, airbase in Tokyo, a US airbase, um, just before Halloween. And a battle ensues after uh, she tracks down a couple of these demons who suck blood. Um, use human blood to live who are pretending to be human and hanging around the airbase well, that's kind of it because it's only uh, 48 minutes long or 42 or something well you know it's in its 40s mm-hmm. so it's, it's pretty fast paced um, now this is kind of the opposite to Paprika in most ways I think um, it is full of stock characters and uh, a cliched storyline and even background um, visually it looks quite nice once again not to paprika standards um, I know it's, it's difficult to know what to say really because it's so short and it's so cliched but um, the action in it is pretty cool yeah and that was pretty tense. There's a really good um, when they're at the, when they get into it at the airbase, inside a, a vehicle kind of a hangar that's full of uh, army vehicles. Um, that turns into a really good set piece. Mm-hmm. Um, but even that action, that kind of um, the actual action climax, is a little bit underwhelming. I thought a little bit anticlimactic. Um, and if the full ending to the piece is a little bit. Mm, I don't know. Didn't quite work for me. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's, it's a pilot. It's, it's, so it's a pilot episode, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Basically. And I thought I thought it'd be a lot older than it was. To be honest, I, I was thinking it was going to be from the nineties, mid nineties or something. But it's actually uh, came out in two thousand. Mm-hmm. I was quite surprised about. Um, I don't know, what do you guys think? I thought it was pretty crazy. The fact, well, as you said, for a, a film that's only 48 minutes long, to something that won't even qualify as a film, as Ken said, that's basically like a pilot to like a drama. And this is just crazy. It kind of, it does look like the start to a great series, but you realise as soon as the film's picking up, it's finishing. Mm, but, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I think this is probably why it's got its cult appeal. With like the thing's not even an hour long, and it's just basically like if people were like trying to compare it to like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, like, but what if like Buffy was actually a vampire, and like there wasn't really vampires; these are like big ass demons, and it's just it's sort of like everything. Raised to the max, in a way. Uh, who doesn't like, uh, you know, uh, a female hero in a schoolgirl uniform uh, slaughtering uh, demons with gory results? I mean, 
Mm-hmm. Obviously, you've got something there to sell to the student crowd again. Yeah. The thing is, though, I mean, I couldn't see much. You know, I bought this uh, pretty cheaply. Yeah. But if I paid the full recommended retail price, of, I think it's something like fifteen or sixteen ninety-nine. Mm-hmm. I think I would be more than a smidge disappointed that I coughed up so much uh, Skrilla. But then, the bit I'm kind of perplexed about is that at the time of its release, I don't know if it's been overtaken, but it was Manga's um, biggest selling film release in, in America. Mm-hmm. It sold tons of DVDs and VHS. And has also been downloaded loads as well. Which yeah. was they, they did that deliberately. Uh, they, they put it up for download for one day uh, for free and then released the DVD the day after. Mm-hmm. So, so it was obviously it's been illegally downloaded as well, but it was uh, available as a legal download for one day. Yeah, and I think it was over sixty thousand people went for it. So, yes, yeah, so, I mean, I quite enjoyed it. It was okay. Like I said, it's pretty, it's pretty uh, formulaic, and it's not like you wouldn't have seen every element in it somewhere else before, possibly better. I'm just a bit su- surprised that it's quite so popular. Hmm. I, know, yeah, I mean, I you can how... see... Go on, Kevin. Yeah, go ahead, Mike. I was going to okay. say, uh, you can yeah, see... Yeah. You... No, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> you, can... <laughs> you can see why there'd be a Hollywood version of it. Well, one, because it's so popular in America in the first place. And secondly, because, like you said, it's, you know, Japanese kind of schoolgirl vampire slashing people up with a samurai sword. Mm-hmm. You can see where they're going to get a film from for that, but I don't know, I don't hold out great hope for the film. I can see it being a bit of a, uh, a Buffy alike. Yeah. Exercise. I wouldn't be surprised if it was actually advertised towards that crowd to begin with. I certainly wonder how many have followed it after this 50-minute long anime because it's it's you know dabbled in different medias. This mm-hmm. the, after this there was a one-volume manga sequel and three light novels, one of which was written by Mamoru Oshii. The uh, one of the planners for this project, uh, the director of Ghost in the Shell and Pat Labor. Uh, and then there was the Blood Plus anime series, which I think I read was a spin off. So I don't know if the character of Saya and David are actually in Blood Plus, but I, uh, but I never did any research on that. And I wonder how many followed it through, you know, the different medias, including the computer game or mm-hmm. rather the um, console game, which based on how these kind of games based on TV series and movies do, uh, do. I don't think that was you know a classic in its own right but uh, but, but maybe it's it, maybe fans have been gathering up to follow it uh, but you know reading the illustrated comics and then just reading the text and being swallowed up by it in that way which you know I, I very much agree that it's just it's a decent look at what pro- hopefully is a pretty decent TV series as well or, or story rather uh, but but nothing nothing about it said you know wow 
I want to see more. Mm-hmm. It, it, it showed, you know, it's, it's a good-looking show, even though they, they, they tried to... Wow, it's made completely digital. It's a revolutionized uh, anime. But I didn't think this looked like better than, you know, what I've seen, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years back. I think yeah, it looks all right, but, you know, n- nothing that would say, wow, this must be made digital, and therefore it's much, much better than everything else. Which might be the intent to to not draw attention to to themselves by you know by that fact. It's just a fact that this production was made uh, completely on computers. Uh, but uh, it's a decent start. But to be honest, I I'm not that uh, keen on you know going uh, into the comic book world and the novel world to find out more about Blood the Last Vampire and the character of Sia and David. Uh, Despite you know the twist towards the end of Blood Last Vampire that sh- reveals a little bit more about what Saya possibly is, because the audience is behind uh, all throughout the Blood Last Vampire, you know, the, the the corporation that deals with this, they they know that they're chasing vampires and stuff like that or demons. Uh, we don't, so we're a little bit behind all throughout and giving mm-hmm. hints throughout. Uh, uh, I did actually like that it's set in the 60s and it's a mix between English and Japanese yeah. and also that it's not that high tech of a movie uh, because of it. You know, the, mm-hmm. we, we've seen the likes of Blade which obviously is set in a more high tech world and therefore could chase uh, chase uh, vampires and stuff. Mm-hmm. More high tech gear so sort of they used what they had in the 60s but it was not Mission Impossible like in its, you know, it's in its technology. So, uh, and and to to be honest, having it in English and Japanese reveal that, you know, it's a, quite some ropey English acting in, uh, voice acting in the film. Mm-hmm. You know, if it, it's supposed to be a deep drama, eventually, that then, then it's not a good thing to have whatever uh, actors they they have they have on board. But uh, but we'll see. I mean, therefore, I, I agree that. Looking forward to the movie after seeing this 50-minute uh, look at it. Uh, I won't counting the days. Uh, I won't be counting the days. Mm-hmm. So, well, you might have to if it keeps getting pushed back. <laughs> Does you out next week? No, it's not next week and three months. <laughs> but yeah, I'd I'd be amazed if this actually just turns out to be like a 48-minute live-action film with like. That would just be a cause of an uproar. Because I think nowadays, like, you're gonna have to have at least two hours of film to keep people in their seats. <laughs> I wonder if they're gonna co- like cover the movie, uh, the story from the beginning, or do what they've done so far and just continue on, which is a risky thing. Yeah. Continue on where the novels left off, but uh, I don't know. It seems like they've taken a lot of risks already with Blood of the Last Vampire by doing. You know the different uh, different sequels to it in, in the different ways. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think the live action film would just be Junji Hyun with a sword chopping up uh, demons. I, d- I doubt it'll I doubt it'll um, bear much resemblance to the anime personally. Mm-hmm. I did think for a second you were going to say it was a film where it's really Junji Hyun chopping up Chris Jones. <laughs> but, anyway. So, yeah, I think that's us. We've wrapped up 
part one of the Japan on Fire series. There's two more to this trilogy, so it's not really a series. So a trilogy can be a series. A series okay. three. Right, we've heard enough from you, Mr. Banner. <laughs> um, so it's yes, not, it, it's not a forty-plus anime uh, series. Mm -hmm. But we are going to be releasing this on separate DVDs, all worth twenty pound each. Yeah. Okay. Well, I I've been your host for this evening. I'm Stuart Sutherland. Yeah, the balls up, Mike. And we'll catch you next time. <laughs>